0: Oh Lord, our God, we ask now that you would grant us a spirit of teachableness, of understanding. That your word would speak to us. That you would remember the promise that you gave through your prophet, that your word would not return to you void. I ask that you would grant me, Father, great grace as your pastor for this church, that I would preach your manner and a preach your word in a manner displeasing to you and beneficial to your covenant people. In Christ's name, Amen. Some of you know I'm in the habit of reading through the book of Proverbs at least once a month. And I always encourage people that it's a very easy practice to do. There are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. It's not difficult reading. If you read one chapter a day, you go through the entire book 12 times a year with very minimal amounts of effort. This Month When I went to Proverbs 1, for some reason, even though I have read these verses from the book of Proverbs hundreds of times, they literally hit me like, like, a, like a liquid concrete wall coming at me. And every now and again, a scripture will do that to you. You might read a passage that you said, oh, I've read this a million times and bam, all of a sudden, God just whammies you. It's just there's no way around it. Now, I didn't hear God speak to me audibly, but I really felt, you need to preach on this. That's why we're not in the book of James uh, this week. We will turn to James tomorrow, unless God hits me with another liquid concrete wall coming at me. This passage in the book of Proverbs is, and this is the danger in the book of Proverbs. Because it is so easy to read, and because it is so easy to understand, we can just gloss over it. 2 plus 2 is 4. In any culture you go to, we, well, most of us know that. I don't know about the little kids, we all know that. We take for granted that 2 plus 2 is always 4, and that it's a rock certainty that 2 plus 2 will be 4. And the book of Proverbs is so simple that we can read it quickly and just gloss over it and not really have to study it, but it is so beautiful. You have to recollect that this book is approximately 3,000 years old. And the wisdom and lessons that it teaches still stand. That is nothing short of amazing. Teachings coming up, what is true, what is real, stands the test of time. And this book, along with the other books in the scriptures, have stood the test of time. All of us need what this passage teaches us. God inspired most likely Solomon to write this 3,000 years ago. People have needed to hear this from the moment it was written and even before. This wisdom type of literature. And it's not hard to understand, but it's... If we really look into our souls, and I'm asking you today to truly look into the spiritual mirror and let this word penetrate your heart, you will be cut to the quick as I was. And as I said, I've read this passage hundreds of times, literally. Wisdom here is personified as if it's a a living thing. It's really God. God is the source of wisdom. He is the fount of all wisdom. Wisdom, as the book of James said, that is from above, is of a certain quality. The wisdom of the world is counter to what the wisdom of God would be. So what the writer does here is, uh, from a literary point of view, a work of genius, he's personifying wisdom as as a living being. And she is calling out to us but in reality, it is God calling out to us the fount of all wisdom. She raises her voice in the open squares. She cries out in the chief concourses at the openings of the gates in the city. She speaks her words. And the passage begins that wisdom calls aloud outside. This is very important. In the ancient world, there was, not at this time, but about a thousand years later, a school of thought, came about called Gnosticism, which is still with us today in, in invisible form. And what that school of thought basically taught was there's a secret wisdom that only a few of you can know. And you have to go through these rituals and you have to do these things and you have to do certain things to get into the club to get this secret wisdom. The word Gnostic means, comes from Gnosis, which is Greek for knowledge. And that is... Something the church has been fighting, that was the first heresy that the ancient church had to fight, was this idea that there was a select, special group of people who had this special, secret knowledge that the average person didn't know. Well, wisdom here is screaming out loud in the middle of the city. The point of this beginning passage is that this wisdom of God is available to anyone who will hear It's not secret. It's not whispered in secret meetings with black hoods. It is screaming. She's screaming out loud. Ruled out of court, Gnosticism. So if you're hearing this now, wisdom is literally calling out to you. Not because I am so wise or because I am speaking it, but because the Word of God is screaming to us. Don't you want to be wise? Do you want to live a wise life? Do you want your children and grandchildren to live a life of wisdom? Obviously, yes. Well, Where do we begin? Just look over on the other side of the page. Proverbs 1.7 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. In the wisdom literature, a fool is not someone who is ignorant of the truth. It is someone who knows the truth and doesn't bother to apply it. Think of it as someone who has a flat tire and doesn't bother to change it and just keeps riding on it. Eventually, what happens? Eventually, you'll stop because the rim will be destroyed. That's, that's what a fool is like in the Scriptures. It's not talking about someone who can't understand the truth. It's talking about someone who knows the truth and ignores it. Ignores what is plainly right in their face. Now, What exactly is the fear of the Lord? Well, thankfully, the scriptures give us this definition. Proverbs 8.13 The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. You see, the fear of the Lord is not this emotional state. That's, quite frankly, that's latent Gnosticism. That I have this feeling inside me that nobody else can get. This fear of the Lord. No, fear of the Lord is an actual state of mind. You hate evil. Ah, well, let me just ask you flat out: do you, do you hate evil? Hate's not a, a good word to use in our culture if you haven't noticed. Everything is love, love, love. Even in the American church. Love, love, love. What we're commanded to hate evil. Evil is not hard to discern in our world. It's everywhere, if you haven't noticed. It's everywhere. And it's in the church, too. That's what's scary. We expect the world to be evil. But when the world begins to infect the church, that's an incredibly scary state of affairs. For instance, a hospital. We expect sick people to be in a hospital. But if a a plague of sorts were to leave a hospital and come into the city and start hurling people down in public, that would be entirely more scary, would it not? I'll be honest with you. When I visit a hospital, they have those um, hand sanitizer thingamajigs everywhere. I probably scrub my hands easy half dozen to ten times every time I go yeah, through a hospital, just it's just common sense. Oh, there's another machine. I'll just I'll just do it. It certainly can't hurt. It's going to dry my hands out. Wisdom is fear of the Lord, and the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. We're commanded to do it. So I'm asking you: Do you hate evil? Are you combating evil in your own life, or are you tolerating it? Are you combating evil? In the sphere that God has placed you, each of you is called to a ministry. Each of you is a priest or a priestess of the living God. Each of you has a sphere of influence that somebody else doesn't have. You're unique. You go someplace. God places somebody in your path. It's there for a spe- that person is there for a specific reason. You're in a particular job, in a particular office, in a particular worksite for a particular reason to shine like a light in the darkness. Each and every one of us. Not just the pastor. Not just the elders. Pastors are not a special class that has some secret type of knowledge. This knowledge is available to all. My ministry is to make the knowledge available to you, to point it out to you so that you can then spread it out into the world, all of us but there are consequences for not heeding wisdom's call how long you simple ones will you love simplicity for scorners delight in their scornings and fools hate knowledge a simple one in this context again, simplicity is a mark of genius you know, there are some people who can make very simple things incredibly complex. It doesn't take a genius to do that. Someone who, maybe you've had a teacher who can make something very complex, very simple. That's a mark of a good teacher. That's a mark of, of, true, of true genius. Simplicity here is moral simplicity. Again, a fool, someone who doesn't bother with the fear of the Lord. And she asks her sort of question, how long are you going to be simple? And what is a scorner? Now, ah, we all know scorners. People you know, that, that bite to them who are just, who just scornful of the things of God. And we find them in, in every congregation even. Again, we expect the world to scorn the message of Christ. Surprise, surprise, surprise. The world hates the church. Jesus said, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, what will they do? call the servants? In other words, hey, they hate me, they're going to hate you. Get over it. But when scorners are in the church, that's, that's, that's again, that's a disease that has to be rooted out. And this simplicity, this idea of remaining a child in our understanding of the faith, let me tell you, has brutally infected the church. And it has for 2,000 years. Book of Hebrews, the writer, you might recall, <clears throat> word I want to look for, takes them to the woodshed, this congregation of Roman, the congregation was in Rome, and he said, by this time, you should be teachers, but you're not. Bear in mind, these people had only been believers at that point, maybe 15 years, their first generation believers, and he says, by this time, you should be teachers, but you're not. You can only drink milk, the writer of Hebrews says. That's what this is talking about. People who just want to drink milk their entire Christian lives. Like an infant. You don't feed an infant steak, do you? No, they don't have teeth. We have got to become meat eaters, the meat of the word. We have got to move past even the basic doctrines, and so many Christians don't even understand the basic, simple doctrines of their faith. And they wonder why the world just, just wears them down and grinds them down. This knowledge is available to you if you will. Did my mic just go out? Oh well. Um, I'll just scream real loud. If you will, this knowledge is available to you. But look what it continues to say. It tells us to turn at my rebuke. The rebuke of God is good. Okay? But being rebuked is not fun. Does anybody here like to be told, uh, "Listen, you just did something wrong? By the way, sweetheart, you've been doing this for ten years that I mentioned, sweetie. this is a habit of yours for the last twenty years, and I'm now just getting the gumption to remind you that I don't like you to throw the tea bag into the sink, and if any of you do that, I just kind of made that up. I, I, I'm just okay. that's one of my habits when I drink tea. I just have a tendency to throw a bag into the sink and forget that the trash can is two yards away. It's one of my faults. We don't like to be rebuked. But a wise person, a spiritual person, will take a godly rebuke and change their ways. That's how you can tell if you're growing in your Christian faith. If someone comes to you in love and points out something legitimate, now we all have been rebuked for things that aren't true. We don't have to take that lying down. You can't call someone a thief who's not a thief. But if you call a thief a thief, well, that's a legitimate charge. Now, if someone comes to you, especially another Christian, and tells you, you know, I see this in your life. And it's a concern. It's a mark of growing maturity that you take that and you say, you know what? You're right. And you by the power of God, change that behavior or thought pattern. But if you stay there, you develop what I call spiritual sclerosis. You just get harder and harder as the years go by. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. If we turn at God's rebuke, he promises to make his words known to us. Don't you want to know God's words? If God were to actually appear in your bedroom tonight, outside of the fact that you would be terrified and blinded by his glory, if he came and said, you know what, I have a, I have a secret message I'd like to whisper in your ear, would you wake up or would you turn, roll over and go back to sleep? He's saying, I will make my words known to you, but you have to turn, I have to turn, we have to turn at his rebuke if those words will get through, but if we don't, there are consequences because I have called and you refused. I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded, because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke. Please look at this. This is the language of someone who's who's trying to teach another person over and over and over. It's not as if you just teach the person once and they don't get the lesson. You know, parents and grandparents understand this. You go over things and over things and over things. And it's just a wonderful relief, isn't it, when the student, the younger person, gets it? It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a gift from God. This is language of God calling out to his people over and over and over again, and then not listening. And the history of God's people, Old Testament and New Testament, is that we don't listen. Do you remember the first martyr? You deacons should be honored and somewhat scared, I guess, that the first martyr of the New Testament church was a deacon. Wasn't a pastor, wasn't a ruling elder, he's a deacon. He's the one who first got stoned, brutally stoned. Do you remember when everybody got mad at him? He said to this effect, you stiff-necked and stubborn people. You constantly grieve the Spirit. That's when they got mad. At first, he was giving them a little history lesson. But when he called them stiff-necked and stubborn, that's when they started gnashing their teeth at him. And they laid him to waste. And then when he got on his knees and says, I see the... I see, and paraphrase here, I see the Son of God, I see the glory, then they really went crazy. You don't want to be stiff-necked and stubborn with God. Like a mule. Some of you have worked with animals like that. You you have to break them. That's the word we use, isn't it? I didn't grow up on a farm, you break the animal? Isn't that the terminology one uses? Please, someone who has some farm experience, give me a nod if I'm... Okay, I've seen some nods. Gotta break that animal. God doesn't want to break us, He wants to heal us. But if we don't listen to His rebuke, what other choice does He have? If you love somebody, you will keep speaking to them, will you not? If He stops speaking to you, then that's a clear sign that you're in danger. And he talks about disdaining all of his counsels and having none of his rebuke, not even a little bit of it. What is God's wisdom going to do then? This is scary in verse 26. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes. This is not the God you hear about today. If we as God's people, as individuals or families as a church, as a presbytery, as a denomination, as a church with a capital C in a particular geographical area, if we do not turn at God's rebuke, he will bring calamity to you in in our lives. And he laughs at it. Now this is obviously exaggerated, hyperbolic language to get the message across. But look at what the psalmist says in our call. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. This is not taught either. Sometimes God will bring pain into your life. Intentionally. To wake you up. Not every time. This is where we have to be careful. There are certain wings of the Christian church today who teach that Christians should never get sick. That Christians should never have any problems. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Just because you're sick doesn't mean that God is punishing you for a particular sin. Just because you're having money troubles doesn't mean God is punishing you for a particular sin. Some things happen just because we're fallen people living in a fallen world amongst other fallen people. And guess what? Life's not perfect. We're not in the new heavens and the new earth. But this calls for wisdom. We need to go into ourselves and ask God, are you trying to teach me something through this affliction? You know, I have a number of back injuries, and some of you have back injuries. They're not fun, because you can't avoid your back. But as I, I told you, I had one of the major back injury was my T7 vertebrae, which is basically in the middle of your chest. I ruptured it in 1994, doing something dumb. You know, picked up a big TV and put it down wrong. Right, it was a mistake. I actually got healed of that injury. God supernaturally healed me. But every now and again, every now and again, that T7 vertebrae will act up on me. And I'll start to feel a numbness creeping around the left part of my body. And this is just just my personal experience. I have learned that in my personal experience, when that T7 vertebrae acts up, it's not... It is never because I picked up the garbage wrong or I raked the leaves wrong. Whenever that happens, I stop and I examine myself spiritually. And I can tell you this with assurance that over the last long, now it's 18 years since that injury was healed, every single time that T7 vertebrae has started to vibrate, when I've looked inside, I've realized, ooh, I've taken a little bit of a wrong turn here. Got to get back on the road and then the pain goes away. It's very strange. I had another friend of mine in New Jersey, literally when we were bachelors, every time he would commit a particular sin, this is like clockwork, every time he committed a a particular sin, something would go wrong with his car, he would get a flat tire at the most inopportune time. I mean, every time he said, I got a flat tire. I said, well, I wonder what you did last night. I mean, literally, like clockwork. And there are these things in your life that God wants to show you. He uses pain to teach us. But again, let me just clarify once again just because you're sick doesn't mean God is disciplining you for a particular sin. That's not always the case. That's not the case, particularly as we get older. As we get older, we just, the body just starts to wear down. You know, young folks don't understand that. Just gets tired. Say it a third time. Just because you're sick, just because you have some pain or struggle in your life, does not necessarily mean that God is disciplining you or chasing you for a particular sin, but it is a possibility. So when it happens, just stop and, and ask Him. He will let you know. He will let you know. None of us, I think, would want this to happen. When terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, this is the really terrifying thing. Verse 28, Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. This happened to the old covenant people. They didn't listen to him. They kept going in their idolatrous ways and he laid his hand upon them and when they cried out, he did not answer. Now, again, I have to qualify this because there's the same wing of the American church says if God's not answering your prayer, it's because you have some sin in your life. Well, God always answers your prayer. Yes, no, or maybe. No is a definitive answer. but There's a wing of the American church that says the answer should always be yes. That's taught nowhere in Scripture. Paul, the apostle, had a thorn in the flesh that we don't know exactly what it was. And he asked God to deliver him from it a number of times. And listen, when Paul went to go ask God for something, you can bet he didn't just say, God, please heal me. You can bet he went, he went down on his knees and God said, no. No. My strength will be perfected in your weakness. Ooh, Not a very popular message. But you see, in our weaknesses, God will show us his power. But it's terrifying to think that God will not answer us or hear us. But then it goes on with some encouragement. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Why? Because they hated knowledge. Because they were too busy with trivial pursuits and did not choose the fear of the Lord, and would have none of my counsel, and despised my every rebuke. This is talking about a people that's not just sinning. Because we all sin. We all stumble in many ways. This is talking about a people who have heard God, and heard God, and heard God, and ignored Him time after time after time after time. You know, think of it as a physical malady. If you have a physical problem and you ignore it, and don't go to the doctor generally speaking, the illness or the malady does get worse. It might go away, but generally speaking, diseases don't go away on their own. Take strep throat, for instance. If you have strep throat or bronchitis, it might go away, but if you go to the doctor, you have a much better shot. The bronchitis could develop into something worse. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way. Notice, God doesn't have to bring a judgment into our lives. He just lets us have our own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. You see, sometimes the way God punishes us, disciplines us, is He just lets us have our own way. He doesn't have to actively do anything. He just says, okay, you know, take your car right through the roadblock and see what's on the other end. We have two choices in life. To walk God's way or our own way. Going our own way leads to absolute disaster. Why would we do it? It's a mystery to me as a pastor why I do it, why you do it, why everybody does it a perplexing mystery. It's because we don't attend to his words. For the turning away of the simple will slay them and listen, the complacency of fools will destroy them. Complacency is a horrible spiritual disease. When Christian life is just routine, when you're complacent about the evil in the world, when you do things just because well, I've always done them That complacency destroys us. But then it ends with hope. Whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. Now this doesn't mean that bad things won't happen. Notice it doesn't say that evil won't happen. But you won't be afraid of it. I recently was speaking with someone, uh, a friend of mine from Bible college. I haven't spoken to him a long time. Very nervous about this coming election. I said, hey, you know, what are we going to do? I said, I said don't you remember Psalm 23? I said, you know, if we're going to go through the valley of shadow of death. We might have to, but we fear no evil. You see, evil will happen around us. But we have guarantees in the scripture that we don't have to be afraid of it. Because God is right there with us. The scriptures never promise us that evil won't come. But we do have numerous promises that we don't have to be afraid of it. And you and I know that fear is that's, that's not a very, you know, that type of fear is not a pleasant emotion. You don't have to be afraid of evil. If you will just heed God's word and walk according to his way. His way is narrow. His way is not easy. But what does Jesus say? The way to destruction is wide and open. We each have to choose which road we want to walk. May we each make the right choice this day. Pray with me. Lord, you have been giving your wisdom to your people for a long, long time. From the garden, we ask, Lord, that we would heed your voice of wisdom. In the name of Jesus we ask. Amen.